Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, welcome back to episode 13 here for the DC Power Hour. And we just wanted to say thanks for listening for the past six months. We hope you all are enjoying it as much as we are, and uh, hopefully we're getting some new listeners along the way. So today we're going to dive into a topic that I'm very interested to learn more about, and it's how UPS systems um, use uh, lead-acid batteries and why they're the top cause of failure in these systems. So um, excited to learn more. George and Alan, welcome back to the show. And Andrew, um, what, what do you guys have to say about this topic and, and UPSs? And, and I guess start by maybe giving us a little bit of your background with these applications. Well, let me start off uh, by correcting you, Dave. Uh, UPSs use other batteries, chemistries other than lead acid, primarily nickel cadmium, but uh, also venturing into the more exotic chemistries at the moment, like lithium ion. So we'll probably cover that a little bit. I know our guest uh, speaker, Al Warner, is probably going to cover some of that as well. But uh, anyway, I'm excited to talk about UPS because uh, I've got on my soapbox a lot saying that there's a basic problem with UPS system batteries. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, but uh, I'll let George have his intro as well. You want me to say something nice about batteries to, to compensate for you? Well, no, George, do you tell it as it is. And uh, I value your opinion as well, though I'm more opinionated than you are. Oh, I don't know about that. But um, no, my, my opinion of um, UPS are very simple. They're an absolute waste of time and they use a lot of energy that they don't need to. Everything we use today runs on low voltage DC. So why do we have to convert everything to AC and then convert it back again? It's as simple as that. The, tele the, the telecom guys, which of course is my background, uh, have been doing it successfully almost since the uh, the days of telecom started using low voltage DC. So why can't everybody else? Well, there's a couple of problems, George. Uh, initially, when UPS has first come out, they were kind of designed to be plugged into the wall. I, I mean that figuratively. Obviously, required a lot more power, but uh, they were designed to go into locations outside the typical telecom central office. There was also another problem in that to distribute DC, as it was in the telephone central offices, it was, it was suffered voltage drop, and because of this voltage drop. It didn't seem practical to transmit DC, low voltage DC. When I say low voltage, I'm talking primarily 50 volts uh, over any great length of cable because of this voltage drop. So we kind of morphed into the fact that, okay, UPSs are going to convert AC to DC. Then they're going to convert it back to AC. Uh, they convert it to DC because they need to be able to bring a battery into the system, convert it back to AC, and then distribute it at whatever voltage AC was appropriate at the time. So that's why 
we're stuck with what we got at the moment about GPS as being AC output devices. Uh, when I was with a previous employer, uh, our guest coming guest, Al Warner will certainly remember this. I designed a DC UPS system for quite a large customer at their willing, at their asking. And, uh, I was told by the, one of the senior members of the uh, company I was working for, uh, that the company I was working for was a UPS company. It wasn't a DC power company. So hand it back to you for a minute, George. Yeah, that, I, I never quite understood that because they were the ones that bought the DC company that you and I were working for at the time. Exactly. So, uh, you know, I, the, that one didn't make sense. But then again, I said, uh, you already realize that I probably am even more anti-UPS than uh, you are in many ways, because uh, I just think there are better engineering solutions. But as you say, we are stuck with it, and we have to live with it. And um, I don't think we're going to see any change in you and I's lifetime, unfortunately. Uh, it's it, Nothing's happened in all the time we've been in the industry, so I don't see it changing now. But anyway, the, what, what are the other problems that we see with a UPS? Well, let's get back down to what we started off with, the subject of the batteries themselves. It's quite simple. Uh, batteries in telecommunication systems, now I, I will accept before MD starts to send chats or criticise it, I accept that uh, telecom batteries are designed to run for long duration and UPS batteries are designed for it's supposed to be about 15 minutes, although I see times coming down to five minutes. But the whole point is that a, a telecom battery can last for 20 years. A UPS battery, if you're lucky, lasts for about three. Uh, so there has to be something wrong with that system. When you talk about uh, UPS batteries lasting about three years, George, I assume you're talking to valve-regulated lead-acid batteries, VRLA batteries. You're entirely right. The telecom batteries are designed in order to keep the system up as long as possible. Uh, sometimes it's mandated that they keep it up for four hours or eight hours, depending on whether they have a generator on site. The reason for that is that the telecom system has to handle 911 calls, uh, life emergency calls. With the UPS system, initially the batteries were designed to just as a ride through mainly so there was a power failure that the UPS could shut down the load equipment in an orderly fashion. So therefore, 15 minutes was probably enough. We were also designed to power the output of the UPS until you could start an engine generator. And modern engine generators usually start in about 30 seconds to a minute. So that was the difference, but the big problem I saw coming into the UPS industry uh, from the telecom industry in the early 80s was that the UPSs weren't exactly kind to the batteries. In a telecom system, the output of the rectifiers is filtered, it's regulated, it's mandated uh, by the FCC what the noise levels can be, what the various uh, uh, EMI electromagnetic interference and RFI, uh, radio frequency interference, what their levels can be. 
with the UPS industry, there was no such regulation. So consequently, the chargers in the UPSs weren't really designed to that tightness of regulation and filtering. And consequently, uh, sometimes they did a, did a lot of damage to the batteries. And I'll let you talk a little bit about that, George. Oh, yeah. it's. Um, I think when you talk about the damage to the batteries and the, the whole the whole problem is is I believe and I so do a lot of other people in the in our side of the industry that there are you know the uh, the biggest problem is the noise and the, and the spikes generated by the chargers. But I, I remember at one IEEE meeting I was at on fourteen fourteen ninety seven the the guide to battery monitoring fourteen ninety one sorry on that uh they were talking about the noise on the noise on ups affecting the batteries and uh, one person from a up one of the ups companies informed us that they met every standard and one of the battery guys that was on the committee turned around and said well all i'll tell you is that if i put this battery one of our batteries onto a ups it lasts two years if i put it onto even a small telecom system it lasts at least ten, and yes, I think that, that's that's. It's, I think part of the trouble is, to be honest, is the fact that the UPS manufacturers won't accept that they have a problem. Well, a lot of us to do with uh, financial engineering, George. But uh, you're right about uh, with uh, IEEE fourteen ninety one. They had a section. Uh, I had helped to write it on uh, ripple, the ripple effects on a battery, and. Uh, we had a lot of assistance from battery manufacturers at the time, particularly uh, I can remember uh, C&D being involved with it. But the thing is that with the UPS, and I'm talking about double conversion UPSs, or line interactive, it doesn't really matter. But the charger is designed as cheaply as possible. Uh, it's usually a uh, pulse type charger and typically it generates a lot of noise and initially we didn't know what noise did to the batteries you know if you were essentially uh, cycling a battery at uh, at 60 hertz but not only was the noise coming from the charger but they found out that there was a lot of noise being reflected back from the inverter so it was a double whammy on the battery and uh, not only that uh, I'll talk about it in a minute, but there was also heat introduced to the equation as well. So this uh, unfiltered charging, or not properly filtered charging, but not only was it damaging the battery, but it was also heating the battery up. And the reflected uh, uh, interference from the inverter section was also heating the battery up. So here we brought something else into the equation, and it was called heat. And... Most of the UPS manufacturers didn't really know how to manage this. And I don't know what your recollections are on, on it, George. Probably the same thing. Oh, he, he, yeah. The, um, one of the biggest problems is that uh, appearance starts to come into play with the UPS. Technology is wonderful, and they've been able to reduce the size of very high-power UPSs down to very small boxes compared to what they were when you and I started in this business. But the, the big problem that I've seen with that is they, at the same time, then want the battery cabinets to be reduced 
so that they are, you know, form and fit the same as the UPS cabinet. And you end up with the batteries being packed in as solid as they could be. And there's no ventilation. Uh, there's no fans because they don't want fans. But I think one of the other real big problems is that uh, where you have, and this isn't always the case, but there are lots of UPS locations that I have worked in where they've actually been in the data hall itself. And in the last, what is it, 10, 15 years, there has been a major push to actually raise the operating temperature of the data hall because they say the computers can operate at a much higher temperature and that will reduce the cooling. Unfortunately, uh, they didn't tell the battery manufacturer and they haven't changed the operating temperature of the batteries. So now you're not only are you suffering from heat because they're packed in, but the actual ambient temperature around about the battery is much higher. It's, it's a whole series of disasters happening at one time. Well, you're certainly right about the, the heat and the lack of ventilation. Uh, I've seen UPS systems operate with large vented lead acid batteries, uh, flooded batteries. And the large flooded batteries seem to have a greater tolerance for the, you know, they're acting as a filter, basically. So they have a greater tolerance for this, uh, for the ripple effect. When they introduced uh, valve regulated lead acid batteries, uh, so-called sealed maintenance-free batteries, which we know were neither sealed or maintenance-free, uh, they, were, they were sold, UPS manufacturers were basically sold a, a bill of goods by the manufa battery manufacturers. They, they wanted something that was uh, smaller, cheaper, lighter, uh, more environmentally friendly, uh, something that could be used in close proximity to other electronic equipment. So the battery manufacturers produced this thing they called a sealed maintenance-free battery, which was neither. So. Uh, just to move forward about 20 or 30 years, George, uh, you mentioned the fact that they were trying to raise the operating temperature or the ambient temperature of the computer room. And I can fully understand that, why they want to do it, you know, to cut down on the cooling. Uh, but as you said, you know, conventional VRLA battery is going to suffer, uh, whose uh, normal nominal operating temperature is somewhere around 77 degrees Fahrenheit. And we all know that the heat is the death knell of the battery, so much so that when you increase the heat the from the battery operating temperature of 77 degrees Fahrenheit, when you increase that by uh, 18, 15 to 18 degrees Fahrenheit, 10 degrees centigrade, that you're going to cut the battery life in half. So, but the manufacturers now are coming, coming out with uh, what they call uh, thin plate pure lead batteries, specifically for UPSs, uh, that are good cycling batteries, but they're, some of them are being designed to operate at a higher ambient uh, because of the construction of the plates, uh, mainly with the adding of uh, alloys to the plates. So that is being addressed, but they still have a problem with where they're housing the batteries in these cabinets. And uh, I can't see that as a solving that other than just having the batteries and open frame racks. And uh, in a minute, I'll, I'll talk about some things that uh, 
we did in the past and some things that we find to be beneficial. Yeah, I, I'll come back to your comments about the thin plate battery. I totally agree with you. You know, I was involved in some testing on thin plate batteries many, many years ago uh, in outside cabinets because of their uh, ability to cope with adverse temperatures. And um, over, a, over a period of time, the uh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. They stood up much, much better to temperature than any other battery that would have been found in those locations. So, yeah, it is. The only problem with thin plate batteries is, is the, well, there's, there's two problems. One, you need virgin lead to, to build them. Um, I wouldn't like to try and do it without virgin lead um, because they don't actually use any additives to it. And the other part is they are much more expensive. Uh, so, you know, what, what is it that's going to uh, be removed from it in order to uh, allow for a more expensive battery? Are we going to see an even cheaper version of the charger design? Well, who, who, who knows what you talked about uh, using virgin lead. In my opinion, all stationary batteries should use virgin lead. Recycled lead, lead that's not... 99.99% pure. It can be used for automotive batteries and things like that. But for UPS batteries and telecom batteries and utility batteries, stationary batteries, I believe it should be pure lead. But anyway, going back several, several years, maybe 20 years, our guest speaker will know something about this. Uh, a UPS company came out with a system where they said, well, we don't have to have the charger all, on all the time. You know, why don't we switch the charger off from the battery's charge? And then we'll let the battery decay and then we'll charge the battery back up again. You know, pretty simple. And I did find out that at the time with the many, many UPS that uh, we had in the field, that the batteries were lasting longer. Okay. So why was this? Well, when you have a battery on a constant float charge, you are consuming life of that battery. At the time, the battery of choice uh, was a lead-calcium battery, and the calcium additives to the grids uh, caused the grids to expand over time. But this was only when the battery was being charged. If the battery wasn't being charged, the grids didn't expand. So by switching the charger on and off, retarded some of that uh, positive grid expansion. and. Uh, there's some methods these days, and we'll talk about that a little bit further, but uh, where some exotic erotic charging regimes have been brought into place. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that, George. Well, I can talk about that, okay, because um, when I was fighting those battles, you'd, uh, you'd move to management, you know. You, you, you got yourself out of the problems that occurred. The big problem we have is, yes, theoretically, if you remove the charge, you then uh, you will not be causing the rate of corrosion. The only trouble is that the uh, depending on how long you remove the charge from the battery, you, you will at points go into discharge, self-discharge. And that is sufficient to do damage to the battery over time. So... If you're not careful, what you're turning, what's happening is you're actually trying to try to turn a lead calcium battery, which is 
never, ever been designed for any form of cycling application. In fact, you avoid them like the plague for cycling, but you're turning it into a cycled battery. And that's, you know, it. yeah, it's not going to fail because of uh, grid corrosion as a result of overcharging or just being on charge. It's just going to have a totally different set of failure modes to, to cope with. So you're not really gaining anything. Uh, we, if you cast your mind back, uh, you and I actually were on the same panel as uh, another friend of ours at one of the uh, BACON conferences, and he was talking about uh, some experiments they had done with removing charge from telecom batteries. But he was actually looking at it, and it, they were they were actually restoring the charge before it ever got to open circuit voltage. So the, the charge was cycling on and off at quite a fast rate in order to achieve this. And he felt that that worked. You know, I, I haven't seen any more papers or anything else about it, but that, that at least was interesting. But it does add a lo- another level of complexity to the charger. Well, I'll, I'll agree with, with there, George. But uh, it brings us into something else, this uh, battery management and switching a charger on and off. It's a maintenance nightmare. You go to service a battery, maybe do some ohmic testing. You've no idea where that battery is on the on its self-discharge or, or whatever. And uh, you know that with uh, more and more prevalent now to have uh, battery monitors installed. Uh, that must be a nightmare for that. And I know you were involved with a lot of design of the, uh, the battery monitoring equipments. So I'm sure you'll agree with me that it is a maintenance nightmare. I'll let you have your say on that. But then I'd like to move on to the fact that maintenance nightmares are another aspects of uh, UPS battery design and UPS batteries where they're housed and everything else. Well, yeah, I, I'll. I'll say a little bit more about the subject of uh, the problems of these um, discharge routines or you know, cutting off the charger. If you're doing it, you're right. If you're doing the, the maintenance manually using ohmic testing, uh, you have no idea what state the battery's in at the time you go to do the maintenance. That's the first problem. So you're, you're not going to get consistent results. If you have the battery monitor on the system, theoretically, and the battery monitor itself uh, won't, most of the good, the good battery monitors will not do a ohmic test unless the battery is fully charged. Uh, so, yes, you, you, you cut down on the number of uh, results you get, but at least you don't, you don't measure them at the wrong time. The problem that, that occurs there is, though, that if you allow the battery, when they allow the battery to, voltages to drop, you will start to get alarms generated. And, and genuine alarms in saying that um, that string voltage has dropped below charge levels, things like that. So, yeah, that, the, the first days of a certain manufacturer's uh, management system, shall I call it, uh, caused me quite a few headaches at the time. Yeah, I can uh, never... I, I, but I'll just carry on for a second, if I may, Alan. You talk about the other maintenance challenges, yeah. I'm, I'm very well aware of those as well. Um, I had one one customer that um, down in down in Virginia, and they had uh, they had battery monitoring on the system, but they also had a service company that came in 
and did quarterly maintenance. They were trying to get it from both times. The only trouble was that every time the battery maintenance company came in and did the maintenance, they knocked off the connections on the cells because the the battery cabinet was so tight. They're trying to get their prods onto the back batteries. Uh, they tended to knock the connections off. And I would get a phone call and say, they've done it again. Can you come down and put them back on, please? And, you know, I then spent about an hour going through a bunch of cabinets with my, uh, you know, a sweatshirt and a few other pieces of clothing on and gloves so I could stick my hand in between the top of this uh, 480-volt battery and the metal shelves that the batteries were sitting on so I could put tab, you know, connect back onto the tab washers again. So, yeah, maintenance is a problem. Yeah, that brings up to mind a couple of things, George. Uh, you mentioned these 480-volt batteries uh, being float charged at 540 volts or if you use uh, what one manufacturer did but decided to have a 960-volt battery but split it in the middle so you only had two 480-volt batteries. This is uh, just leading to problems. Uh, and a lot of the UPS cabinets weren't designed to allow you to break this battery string down into units of or strings of less than 50 volts. And NFPA 70E, we talked about arc flash and talks about safe working voltages on the batteries. They went from 50 volts DC to 100 volts DC. Then the last edition, they reverted back to 50 volts DC. So theoretically, to work on that 480 volt battery, uh, you had to split it into sections of less than 50 volts nominal. And the only way you could do that was take off battery connections, which was pretty dangerous. But uh, I like I, I see now that some UPS manufacturers have started to put on alphanol-type uh, connectors that allow you to uh, disconnect the battery or to break the battery down into 50-volt uh, segments. But the problem is still have the same problem, George. You know, you want to do a ohmic test on the battery with a hand-held ohmic tester. A lot of times you can't even get at the terminals. Uh, you can't see. I've seen installations with a one to two inch clearance on top of the battery. Always wondered why most UPS batteries were designed in the typical car battery uh, format with the two terminals on the top. Uh, telecom was the first to go over to front terminal batteries. And I don't know why UPS didn't do that sooner. Probably because the manufacturers didn't make UPS batteries with front, terminal, with front terminals. But I think the front terminal battery is a great boon to the UPS industry, and they should start adopting those as soon as possible. Well, I wouldn't disagree with any of you, anything you've said there is. And I just want to make the point, you mentioned arc flash. And when I talked about me putting uh, terminals back on again at that point, um, Arc flash was not a priority for MD, so no, uh, I didn't have an arc flash jacket to wear at the time. Um, the, the problem today is, though, that arc flash is now a major priority, safety priority within NFPA 70E, and uh, in a lot of companies, they are 
uh, absolutely adamant that uh, you can't go near that battery unless you have your full uh, cow suit on that they, they, they want you to have on. And I'll be honest with you, um, I've, I've never actually had to do it, thank goodness. I sort of moved up the management level a bit before that came into place. But I have to say that I have tried it just to see what it was like. And I couldn't do it. You, you simply, if you put the full suit on, you cannot work inside a, a UPS battery cabinet safely. Yeah, it's I as agree. simple as that. The, the suit actually get, adds another level of hazard to it. I agree. But, uh, you know, for all the uh, complaining we do about UPS, they do serve a purpose. There's some are more reliable than others, but it's always interesting to see when you read reports by the Uptime Institute and other such bodies that the battery uh, is the biggest single point of failure of any UPS system. And it makes me laugh sometimes when you, a UPS manufacturer comes up and says, okay, our UPS is 99.999. I was going to say efficient. I'm not talking about efficiency, sorry, but 99.99 reliable. And then you ask the simple question, well, does that include the battery? And you get, oh, well, no. So the battery's been proven to be the single point of failure of any UPS system that employs a, uh, a battery, whether it's lead acid or NICAD or whatever. I don't know so much about lithium-ion application in UPSs at the moment. Uh, I don't like the way it's going, but anyway. So people ignore the, the humble battery in a UPS system, and they spend thousands and thousands of dollars uh, on the UPS. Uh, they spend a lot of time writing specifications uh, for RFPs, a couple of hundred pages uh, on the UPS, and then maybe they have a paragraph that says the battery shall be sealed maintenance-free. So I think the whole industry needs to take a closer look at the uh, batteries and UPS. I know IEEE does, doing a lot of work on that. In actual, there's a IEEE standard that uh, for UPS batteries that has been revised several, several times and still needs some work. So anyway, I think we've probably talked most of this to death, George. But well, uh, I, I just, I would like, I'll finish off with one comment that I was going to let you something finish. you've just said. And that is that uh, you, you said that uh, in all these reports, the uh, the battery still remained the uh, the primary cause of data center failures or outages. Uh, however, on the on the last one I ever saw, uh, it was a, it was a few years ago now, was that um, uh, in this case the battery was no longer on the top of the list. Regrettably, getting hacked was likely to cause an outage more than the battery. It wasn't that the battery had actually improved in reliability, but um, now the uh, the security of the network was uh, more of a problem. It's uh, a sobering thought, shall we say. Well, I, to- I totally agree there, not only for getting the UPSs being hacked, but uh, the whole utility distribution network. I, I have problems with the fact that it's so easily hacked. Some of the uh, data centers are taking precautions against that uh, in that they will put firewalls between the 
the UPS monitoring and the people who monitor it. So you have situations where people are spending money uh, to install monitors, battery monitors onto, onto UPS, and not only battery monitors, but other types of monitors to monitor a lot of peripheral equipment. And then they find out they're not allowed to extend those monitors outside the data center. So anyway, that's probably thought for another discussion. Uh, we'll probably have some time coming up soon. And uh, when we talk about uh, possibility, the probabilities of uh, hacking and what precautions need to be taken. I agree. So do you want a last word, George? No, that's, um, I, I don't always need the last word. I think almost we, I think almost we, always. We, not well, always. I, was getting, I was getting a little bit worried there because you, you were agreeing with me again, George, or I was agreeing with you, whichever way you want to look upon it. But uh, you, you were agreeing with me. Okay. Okay. Well, then our next discussion, we'll have to, we'll have to make amends there. So uh, I think probably uh, this would be a good time to bring in our guest speaker. Yeah, sounds good. Alan, if you want to um, interview our guest speaker and talk about your your guys' experience working together. And uh, yeah, we'll take this UPS conversation a little bit further. Okay. Al, are you, Al Warren, are you, uh, are you there? Uh, hi, Alan. How are you hi. doing today? Uh, I'll let you comment on what you, if you listened into what George and I were talking about, but uh, I'm really happy to have Al Warner as our guest speaker. I've known Al for Oh boy, 30 odd years, I guess. I've learned a lot from him. Uh, hopefully he's learned a little bit from me. But anyway, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, Al, but very, very briefly. I, I, I know your resume could probably take up 30 minutes, but see what you can squeeze into a couple of minutes. Anyway, Al, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, uh, I've been involved in the uh, UPS industry for about 37 years, uh, known Alan for a major portion of it. And uh, prior to that, I spent 15 years in the U.S. Army and avionics and electronics and all kinds of stuff. Got out, went back to school on the GI Bill and then started in the UPS industry in 83. So been fortunate to be involved with a lot of uh, R&D projects, uh, three-phase UPSs, big power up to 1,500, 1,600 uh, kilowatts, uh, parallel systems. I mean, pushing the breakers up to 6,000 amps, if you will. So big battery systems, little battery systems, VRLAs, whatever. So that's it. It's been fun. I enjoyed it. And uh, it's still fun. So that's why I'm here. Well, I know Al's seen it all. When I first met Al, I was, we were talking about uh, 5 kVA UPS's uh, size mm-hmm. of a smaller refrigerator, Al. And mm-hmm. uh, look where it's gone. But uh, Al's a lot of experience in that and uh, a lot of experience in large UPS's as well. So you probably listened to what George and I were talking about. But uh, uh, you can comment on that. But I'd like to ask you a couple of fundamental questions, Al. There, there are several types of UPS's. What I'm talking about is dual conversion, line interactive, and such on. Which do you consider to be the most reliable? Well, from my perspective, the most reliable is the one with the least components. So if I had my druthers, I would probably take a really big 
line interactive UPS over a, a double conversion UPS just because of the component counts. Because when we look at electronic systems of any kind or even a battery system, the more components we have, the more likely it's going to fail. And the reality is everything made by man will fail eventually. Well, I, I certainly uh, realize that, Alan. You know, I, I was an old double conversion UPS guy and uh, slowly got converted to line interactive because of my employer at the time, I guess. But, uh, you know, we, you heard George and I probably talking about uh, UPSs and batteries. I'd like to ask you, uh, do you think UPSs are battery friendly? And if not, what do you see the major problems? Well, before I answer that, let me qualify that there are some great double conversion UPSs out there based on technology, but those are patented technologies that are exclusive probably to one manufacturer, and you know who that is. So going back to the question, I think the most modern UPS topologies offered into the market are battery-friendly if they've been designed that way. Unfortunately, a lot of double conversion UPSs are still using old six-pulse rectifiers. you got manufacturers from China. You've got batteries from China. You've got all this stuff that is not really cohesively designed to be compatible and to work with different battery technologies, whether it's lead-acid uh, float uh, wet cells, VRLAs, uh, sodium ion, NICAD, you name it. It's it's a, a problem, but some manufacturers have figured it out and have designed their systems to be compatible with multiple technologies of energy storage. You heard uh, me mention the problem that, uh, with noise on the UPS system, whether it's noise uh, generated by the charger itself uh, or mm-hmm. whether it's reflected noise. Uh, have you seen any studies, Al, that actually uh, has looked into this and seen see what the damage, actual damage has been caused to the battery? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, very early on in the uh, trans, my transition from single phase to three phase systems, uh, you automatically get involved with higher level uh, consulting engineers who are concerned about uh, ripple effects on, on the battery systems. And those ripple effects are directly related, related to the rectifier and the frequency that the rectifier is running at. So when you have 12 pulse rectifiers, you have a naturally higher ripple and lower frequency on those, and it's harder to filter. But when you switch at uh, 16 kilohertz, for instance, with an IGBT front end, you you have greatly reduced your ripple and you, it's much easier to filter. You can use smaller components, you know, smaller inductors, smaller capacitors, and remove all that ripple and provide the battery with what it is, uh, you know, what it needs that it doesn't like AC ripple, not when you're floating and 
I think float charging is a disgrace uh, to the UPS industry because it promotes positive grid corrosion in the battery string, especially when you've got 480 volt battery strings and stuff like that. But you you guys were talking about the hysteresis loop charging where you turn the charger on and then you shut it off and selecting the voltages there is really critical to extending the life of the battery. You can't let that battery discharge like George said. You've got to turn that charger back on before it goes below the open circuit voltage. So you really key in on, and that's something I learned way back with Best Power and working with Johnson Controls in designing the hysteresis loop charging. We had batteries back then that uh, before I left and moved to my last company, we had what everybody would consider three, two to three year BRLA batteries. Those things are lasting eight years. So I know that charging topology works, but it's all dependent upon the selection of the voltages. Uh, I can remember those days as well, Al, when we, uh, we first started those experiments. But uh, mm-hmm. you also heard us talk about uh, the problem with batteries, the way they were being housed in cabinets. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think it, you know, it's the problem, the real problem with the battery and UPS is a user problem. The users want the cheapest and it's a bid spec market. So you wind up with these cabinets that are stuffed with jars. You as a battery manufacturer may provide the batteries but you're not in control of how they're packaged. And that's a problem. You need, you need cooling. I mean, I looked at a, a system down in, uh, in Texas at a uh, industrial plant just recently. And the batteries were VRLA batteries and they were still strapped in their shipping positions inside the cabinet. There was no space between jars. They still had the shipping foam installed around them. And these things have been installed for three years and they failed. So I wonder why. I wonder why. I, I think they might have had some thermal issues, but, uh, you know, and the fact that they were being float charged while they were in that installation, it's, it's crazy that people treat these batteries like that because if they're treated properly, they will work. They will do their job. So to say the battery is the number one cause of failure in UPS systems, I don't think so. I think the users are. I can't disagree there, but uh, aren't these batteries maintenance-free, Al? No battery is maintenance-free. <laughs> they are all require maintenance. It doesn't matter whether it's lead acid, sodium ion, lithium ion, you name it, they will require maintenance. You need to look at them. You need to monitor them. They, uh, you know, there's IEEE uh, documents, guide standards, practices uh, written about around uh, maintaining batteries. And uh, in my opinion, a lot of the UPS manufacturers kind of ignore this. Uh, They ignore, okay, how are we going to get 
just a simple voltmeter probe onto the battery terminals just to check the battery voltage. So if you have any comments about that? Well, the only, and the way they package these, I mean, the, the industry, the entire data center industry has driven everything to impact the least footprint, cheap as you can get it. I mean, if you put spade terminals on the battery terminals and you hook your wires up for your monitoring system, obviously you can monitor the voltage. But as a standalone battery pack without those capabilities, you cannot, it's like you said, maybe one to two inches of clearance in a battery cabinet. That's stupid. Well, you know, why this mindset? Is it competition between the UPS manufacturers to see who can produce the cheapest box? Or is it, uh, are they being driven by the financial engineers for the, from the users? Does nobody take a step back and look and say, we have a problem here? Well, I think you, I like your term financial engineers, because that's exactly the market that most UPS vendors and battery providers or vendors are working in. It's a bid spec market. It's like, okay, which prostitute gets the business? Forgive me for that word, but that's the way it works. Everybody is looking for the least cost and they will do anything to get there, even though it's the wrong thing. That reminds me of a quote by John Glenn, I believe, to say that the fact that he uh, circled the, the globe in, uh, in a piece of equipment that was designed by the lowest bidder. Exactly. I, I've, I've heard that too, Alan, and it's really true. So you, you risk everything based upon the lower, lowest bidder. You are taking a huge risk. The, uh, this leads me on to a kind of a, probably a wrap up uh, question, Al, here. I'm sorry we're restricted by time, but, yeah. uh, we talk primarily about BRLA batteries used in UPSs. It's a two part question. One is, uh, what do you think of the, uh, fact that they're reducing the, Hold up time, the autonomy from standard 15 minutes down to 10 minutes, down to five minutes. And they, to go along with that, the UPS manufacturers and users are looking at using lithium ion batteries and similar chemistries in the UPS, uh, which suits the uh, lower voltage, or sorry, mm-hmm. not the lower voltage, but the lower autonomy time. Very well. So, is this being driven? Was one being driven by the other? I don't think so. I think the uh, I think the autonomy time is driven, but in the data center industry, at least, where they have backup generators with fast start. Usually, these things are up and running within ten to fifteen seconds of the outage. So, having fifteen or thirty minutes of backup time is overkill because you're going to generator. But if you can't get the generator, you may have a huge problem in being able to save and shut down your equipment. So a lot of, a lot of people are quoting 10 or 5 minutes just to give them that time to save their data. But uh, with respect to lithium-ion, I mean, it's not new. My 
previous employer, we introduced it in 2016. And to my knowledge today, there's probably at least 500,000 those modules out there and they're very reliable. They're very safe. It's not like watching a Tesla crash and burn. So if I had my choice, knowing what I know today, I probably would never use a lead acid battery in that application. Every energy storage system has a particular niche. And one of those niches for lithium, especially the the systems I worked with, was really 10-minute runtime in megawatt capacities. That's right. My big my big hang up with the uh, reduced runtime hours is kind of the fact that uh, if you're using batteries in parallel, which a lot of times you do to give you the uh, capacity, but uh, you know, as you know, the uh, it's not a linear equation. You know, if you have two strings sized for ten minutes and you lose a string, you don't automatically mm-hmm. get five minutes. You get more like three minutes. So a right. uh, little bit dangerous, in my opinion, to go with five minutes. But again, that's that's a personal opinion. Al, uh, well, there there is a difference, Alan, between uh, a lithium and a lead acid in paralleling strings and uh, losing runtime. Most, uh, for instance, a megawatt system, you're looking at five to seven strings of lithiums. And if you lose one, you're not losing a lot of capacity. And these systems are monitored very tightly and they're, they are absolutely safe, but only from specific manufacturers. I can't say the same thing for a lot of other lithium systems. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.